Hello everyone, it's January 14th, 2020. So Astrospace, what are they up to? Maybe answering an ambitious challenge from DARPA for polar launches from any number of launch sites with little advanced warning, then doing it all over again in two weeks. That's a very DARPA thing to do. Let's do the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 243 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Yay, so we're all Dennis. here now. <laughs> How's it going, Dennis? What what have we missed? <laughs> uh, just a lot of travel and um, not doing anything but playing video games in my pajamas. Oh, good. Uh, actually, what, that, uh, was, <laughs> that was before uh, last week when I finally... Uh, got back in Tucson and had to get back to work. And so that's kind of been a combination of enjoying time off and vacationing and then having reality <laughs> hit me in the face. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. That's what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay, let's ignore reality. What what video games are you playing? <laughs> oh, funny you should bring that up. Uh, yesterday, yeah, yesterday I bought Space Engineers. Oh. And it really is as addictive as my friend was warning me it was going to be. <laughs> It's uh, essentially Minecraft, but like, yeah. you know, in space. And you can do things like in Minecraft that you can't really build vehicles in Minecraft. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like that uh -huh. was always one limitation, but uh, you can do that in here. And so I spent, you know, I think eight hours yesterday mining and then trying to build a spaceship. A friend's got, we've got our own server and everything. So it's pretty oh, nice. awesome. Oh, dang. I'm looking at it. I, so I played it when it was in, in an early alpha. Like it, it was back before you could pay for it. It was just a free game. And it, it looks really good. From what they've told me, they've uh, fixed and changed a lot of things. So it's still kind of like yeah. has some bugs. And I think you tag something called experimental mode uh -huh. uh, if you want to basically unlock some potentially buggy features but uh so you, are hmm. you playing on a public server or what what's no a, a, a friend um started a private server so these are uh cool. these are guys that i know through uh my buddy's uh video game comedy podcast keep calm and game <laughs> on <laughs> and so uh yeah so we're basically starting off on a moon and we're just trying to basically get enough resources and energy and power to stay alive and then eventually work our way to the adjacent yeah. uh planet that cool. is Earth-like, from what I understand. Okay, yeah, this is the first I'm hearing of it, but I don't know much about games. I hear about, there's so many space games these days. Like, I remember back mm -hmm. when it was just Kerbal Space Program. Now it's like Space Engineers and what are the other 20? <laughs> I don't know, but like, there's like a lot of them. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, Space Invaders is a very early game. I mean, like... If, well, <laughs> that's not, but okay, yeah, yeah. But Our I mean, like, things that, are, things that are a little bit more like realistic as far as the physics. I mean, obviously, this is not mm -hmm. that necessarily. This is more like you said, Minecraft, right. but still like you get to build something, you know, like yeah. that kind of Yeah, You concept. have gravity applied to your... Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the physics I've seen is, is really good because um, you have a little jetpack, so you can go zooting around all you want, uh, but you can toggle uh, these dampeners so you don't have to deal with Newton's first law just being an absolute nightmare for maneuvering. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, so it's, it's kind of like a fun way of like combining both physics as well as, you know, making the gameplay not brutally painful. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I've realized I either can play video games or I can do anything else in my life. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't play video games by halves. You know, I just I I'm either playing video games or I'm or I'm not. I mean, there's mm -hmm. there's no there's no halfway point. Astra, if you remember them, the secretive 
covert company. Yeah, I guess technically <laughs> it's Astra Space, right? Okay, yeah, I guess Astra Space. Sure. Right, right. Um, well, technically, no, I thought technically it was. Well, the, half what's of their, 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 their stealth. Yeah. Well, ha- half of their FAA applications say Astra, and half of them say Astra Space. So I wonder if it's actually two different companies. Uh, Astra works on the ground segment and Astra Space works on the flight segment. I don't know. Oh, at least with the, uh, the FAA filing, I know that it's, it's that legalese, like, the, or I could quote it right here, right? This order's issued to Astra Space Incorporated, referred to as Astra. So that oh, way the rest of the documentation, okay. you know, from now on, the complainant, you know, hereafter, the complainant, whatever right, kind of language. Right. <laughs> Just like how SpaceX is actually space exploration technologies, but then you right, can just right, refer right. to SpaceX. So. Yeah. So anyway, Astrospace, formerly known as Ventions, formerly known as Stealth Space. And, and I think that was where I cut you off. <laughs> yeah, Stealth Space. So, yeah, so I thought that was also, I mean, at least that's what their website is, right? It's like stealthspace.com or something. Like they haven't even updated. I think that's, I, I think they don't have a formal website, but like when they have to say something like on LinkedIn... That's what they go with stealth space. Well, that's what they used to. Now, now they're now they're out. I, I believe it's still their email addresses, which I thought was funny oh, really? in the filings. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, LinkedIn still has an organization called Stealth Space Company. And there there is a website. I don't know if this is if this is it, but there is a stealthspacecompany.com, which has literally nothing on the front page except for jobs. Then you click on it, and it says we are hiring, and it does have avionics. Human resources, machine shop, manufacturing, and production. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a rocket company, so I'm assuming that that's the one. Yeah, we are hiring. <laughs> very minimalist site, which is kind of cool. Very, uh, you know, yep. that's that's mm-hmm. how you build up Mystique. <laughs> yeah, so there's been some FCC filings that are indicating that maybe they're going to be doing some launches soon. So we got a, a number of things came out. Um, so, so first off, it's worth pointing out that they're going to be flying rocket version 3, um, rocket version one and version two flew in quotes uh, back in 2018. Uh, Dennis made sure to make sure that, that in the notes we noted they neither of them was a total success. Um, one of them included having to pull out a bunch of soil from around the the launch site to get like reclimated, basically because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was full of uh, full of fuel that you know can't be let to just sit there and seep into the the groundwater or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so rocket version three, we have three launches have been approved um, out of Kodiak. So these are uh, low earth orbit, uh, low, low polar, yeah, low polar orbit uh, trajectories flying, quote unquote, a small satellite. That's all we know. And they're, uh, they're approved for three launches out of Kodiak. I wasn't able to find any specific dates. Uh, the licenses expire in like 2022. So uh, that's no help. But the expectation is this is going to be happening uh, this year. They have other FAA licenses that look like that that are expiring in January, March. So uh, so it looks like we may see at least one launch out of uh, out of Kodiak by March. And the other really cool thing is they got their license for their DARPA launch. So Dennis, you you wrote a little bit about the DARPA launch challenge. You want to cover this before we talk about the license? Sure, sure. So this was a uh, challenge uh, issued by DARPA. And um, the idea was to try to get uh, space launching services to be more like commercial air travel. Right, where you have multiple launches with very quick turnarounds in different locations, and it's kind of like a very, very fast 
sort of way to do things. So they had something like a few dozen applicants uh, that applied, and then that got whittled down to 18 uh, that were selected. But then those 18 uh, of them, 15 dropped out uh, due to issues with getting uh, licenses uh, with the uh, FCC and or rather FAA and uh, which apparently is quite involved and can be difficult to do. And so at the end of the day, you only had three companies. You had Vector, you had Voxspace, which is the U.S. Uh, incorporated subsidiary of Virgin Orbit. And then you had an anonymous third candidate, which we now know is Astrospace, although people have been speculating it was Astrospace this entire time. And uh, of those three, they got something like $400,000 for uh, developing the challenge itself, which is essentially to get two launches from different sites with very little uh, foreknowledge of the payload and very little kind of time between them. And so uh, after a while, those three uh, became just one vector as we learned, what was that, late last year uh, when they went basically belly up. They lost their uh, one of their big sources of uh, capital, uh, Sequoia, I think. So in any event, Vector basically uh, ran out of money. Uh, Virgin Orbit subsidiary uh, pulled out. They just uh, didn't want to participate in the challenge anymore. It wasn't for them. And so there was that one remaining uh, Astrospace. And the original plan for the challenge uh, was that you would get the information on the site 30 days prior to the launch that you're expected, and then you would get the payloads uh, two weeks out. And for that first successful launch, you would get $2 million, and if you completed the second one, that would be a $10 million prize. Or back when there were still three candidates, $10 million for the first person to get a second launch, and then uh, $9 million for second place, and $8 million for third place. But those uh, other prizes clearly are out there now. And so uh, what ended up happening, if you looked at these documents, right, the um, application for the Wallops DARPA launch has a start date of March 1st, which is more than 30 days out. So that's clearly more than a 30-day uh, notice prior. And so basically, uh, it sounds like, from what I read, Astrospace kind of talked <laughs> to the government, was kind of like, let's be a little more realistic <laughs> about this. Maybe, uh, you know, you know, maybe give us a little more time with that, with the knowledge of where we're going to launch from. We have to still, you know, file all these uh all this paperwork and whatnot. So they did that, and ultimately they uh, agreed that uh, the final trajectory is what's going to be only uh, given to them 30 days before the launch, and that they're only going to receive the spacecraft a few days ahead of time. And so that's kind of where we stand uh, with the one lone DARPA Challenger uh, looking to uh, make this happen. One thing I'm curious about is that for anyone to be a viable candidate here, right, they have to have mobile launchers, right, because it could be at any one of several sites. So, like, for example, SpaceX could not do this because they can't launch from Alaska. So it has to be small and mobile. And, I mean, that is the idea, right? But that is a prerequisite. Or do I have that wrong in that, like, maybe they could just have, like, you know, small launch facilities, like, based in each of these five different locations? Because I think it's about five different places. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, yeah, if, if if you, you know, can only launch a rocket from a single location, that just renders you kind of de facto mm -hmm. ineligible for this challenge. But well, I mean, SpaceX can launch from two different locations, so right. Mm -hmm. But but I think I think the key is that um, a Falcon Nine is is way overpowered for this uh, for this challenge. I mean the 
the vehicles that they're launching are are much much smaller. Right. Well, and then there's other issues too. Like I don't think that SpaceX. I mean, to be honest, I don't think that they could have a vehicle like ready to go in a week or so. At least not just yet. Well, and and you know, I think these are all going to be polar launches anyway, right? So <laughs> that really is only one place that that uh, SpaceX can launch from. I have a question for you guys. So these three launches from Kodiak Pacific Spaceport. Alaska. Is the idea that just one of these is going to be part of this DARPA challenge? Or, right? Because I can understand, or, or are none of them part of the DARPA challenge? That, yeah, I guess that was kind of my question. And they just hap- we just happen to get all these permits at the same time. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's likely that at least one of them is. But yeah, I, I, we don't know. Mm. Um, okay, uh, good. I was wondering if that was just me, like not being able to kind of parse the language of these and figure things out but uh well i'm okay so hold on i'm a little bit confused like what do you mean by is it part of the challenge well the challenge you know you got to launch from two sites and so for astrospace the sites could be kodiak and wallops Mm -hmm. but are these three launches that they got that they're you know getting the approval for in kodiak is one of these part of the DARPA challenge? Or, well, because I mean, oh, in the right, filing yeah. for WAPS, they mentioned DARPA specifically, right. but they exactly. don't in the, in the Kodiak one. Yeah, okay. I, 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 I don't know. I don't think any of us knows, but my, my expectation is that I think it's reasonable to think that one of them might be for the DARPA out of uh, out of wallops i mean just given the structure of of the darpa challenge but who knows they they may be doing one just one launch for darpa and then they'll get a second one later that they'll have to apply for a new permit for or something mm. who knows? so the second launch yeah there's a a time constraint yeah I I'm, it's like, it two like two weeks, weeks? right yeah. two weeks yeah okay so so they'll be like so what might happen is you know they launch from wallops and somebody comes shakes their hand good job now in two weeks launch yeah from then you'll know this location this is neat, and and I would I would like to know more about Astra, but that's just an old <laughs> gripe that I have. They're they're not nearly as bad as Blue Origin, but still, they are very secretive and stealthy, as you know, mm-hmm. just like their website says. <laughs> so let's do three short and sweet. Uh, we have three of us here, so we'll each do one. What is the first one, Dennis? Well, first up, Virgin Galactic's second spaceship passes important milestone. With all major structural elements of its second commercial spacecraft in place, Virgin Galactic has reached the, quote, weight on wheels, end quote, milestone, in which the vehicle deployed its main landing gear and carried its own weight for the first time. With this major step in development completed, the company will now work on connecting the spaceship's integrated systems and completing the final structural closeouts with ground testing to follow. And then next up, another lunar lander is in the running. Sierra Nevada Corporation has confirmed that it has joined a team led by Dynetics to develop a human lunar lander system for NASA's HLS program. A Dynetics spokesperson has confirmed that the company did submit a proposal for the HLS program, and other bidders for the project include Boeing, Blue Origin, and possibly SpaceX, though this has not been confirmed. However, all submissions had to be in by November 5th, 2019, and the selected winners will be announced no earlier than February. So they're just going to pick two teams, I think, two or maybe three, or maybe just one. Yeah, they got with the with the budgeting, they got different options of how they want to, how they can do this. They were expecting a budget of $1 billion for this project, but they only got $600 million. So that has actually caused a delay, and that's why this selection will not be made until February, possibly even later than that. But it was supposed to have been selected sooner. But they're having some budget 
problems because, uh, you know, that happens with NASA. All right, and finally, uh, a Starliner joint investigation has been announced. After Starliner had its clock issue a few weeks ago, we wondered what the investigation was going to look like. Well, since then, NASA has announced that it will be participating and establishing an independent joint investigation team. Not only will they be looking for the root cause of the clock issue, but they will also be looking for other potential software issues that could pose issues in the future. A second test flight is expected, though a docking requirement might not be included. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we actually have a good correction. We don't seem to get those too often anymore, I guess because we get it all right. But uh, we have a correction regarding last week's This Week in Space Flight History. (laughs) It's all in the editing. I just take out the part that we mess up. So we were talking about the hydraulic systems on the Falcon 9, like I guess the first Mm -hmm. landing attempt or the second one, or Mm -hmm. or the first one landing on a barge or the drone ship rather, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so this comes from uh, Ben Hallard on Twitter. I think this is really interesting. He says, um, maybe it was an open loop hydraulic system uh, at one point, but it's actually been closed for a while now. And he quoted uh, a Musk tweet from 2017, where he said the hydraulic system is closed loop, so no fluid lost. So that was in in reply to Scott Manley. So um, this was when they upgraded to the big titanium fins. And Scott asked, do the larger fins require more hydraulic fluid for the standard recovery profile? And uh, and yeah, Elon said, yeah, they, they do require more fluid, but that's okay. So interestingly enough, ah, ah, okay. And then uh, I needed to continue reading the thread because uh, Elon says, we used to have a lame open loop hydraulic system, but that was upgraded to closed about two years ago. So in around 2015, they uh, they switched over to closed loop. So that's okay. good to know that that changed. And then sort of uh, later on in the conversation, we were talking about the second stage TVC uh, caused a, a delay for that uh, launch. And I was talking to one of our sources who I'm going to um, not name. Um, but they said uh, that Merlin Vacuum actually had a, a lot of TVC problems that actually had to do with uh, FOD for an object debris. Hmm. They actually ended up replacing a lot of TVCs on the pad. So we saw, you know, a lot of stand downs leading up to launch. I don't know if you guys remember seeing that all the time, but we'd be oh, like, yeah. okay, are mm-hmm. they, are they going to do it? Yeah. A lot of that, it turns out has to do with, um, with the, the TVC on the second stage. Um, and it kind of comes down to, um, a filter that they had in there that was super, super, super fine, um, and could, uh, get clogged, uh, with debris really easily, which could lead to unexpected movement or, you know, the system, uh, not responding to movement properly. And yeah, uh, pr- pretty cool that, uh, we get, get a little more information to talk about here. Yeah. So I'm curious, what is the source of the FOD though? Cause this, it would have to be within the tank, right? Yeah. It could, I mean, it could be anything. And, you know, since, since we're talking about such a, a fine, uh, filter, it, you know, it could be dust or yeah. you know f- inside the tank that wasn't cleaned properly or uh fod that was introduced from the the filling system and th- we're talking about fod that the engine wouldn't look twice at mm-hmm. um but you know this filter w- was overly fine and, c- and could get clogged you know to be clear uh this this is inside the actuator not in not inside the the fuel line uh so that that's our uh, our quick correction burn for this week Cool, let's move on into this week in spaceflight history. We got some winners. Oh, we got some partial credit winners, it looks like, and some full credit winners. Yeah, so we have uh, two winners, uh, Jason Friesen and Thomas Formanek. 
Um, and then we have absolute full credit goes to Ben Hallert. Um, and then the Greek, I don't, I don't know if this was, uh, if this counts as a hundred percent full credit, but they, they were close enough that I'm going to go ahead and lump them in there. Um, so this week in spaceflight history is the 14th of January, 1977. It was the delivery of the first SCA to Edwards. Well, technically to Palmdale, but it was the first SCA and 905NA. So there, there were two SCAs, uh, by the end of the shuttle program. N905NA was the first, and then N911NA was added later. Um, real easy way to tell the two apart. 905 has got two upper deck windows, and 911 has five upper deck windows. So for the SEA, the shuttle carrier aircraft, um, they originally considered um, using a C5 Galaxy and, and modifying it. Uh, I think it would have been uh, a nice choice because it definitely looks cooler um, but the C5 has got a high wing uh, design that posed potential issues um, with uh, with aerodynamics. Um, also, NASA wanted to own the SCA outright, and if they used uh, uh, an Air Force C5, the Air Force would have uh, maintained ownership. So instead, they selected a seven a Boeing 747 uh, with heavy modifications. Of course, they ended up stripping the cabin down to the structure. I mean, they they pulled out even the the insulation, um, and there'll be a photo in the show notes from inside. And it it really it it doesn't look like a 747, mm. <laughs> right? Because you know you think about 747s as being this very iconic uh, interior cabin. They added a bunch of reinforcement, uh, like actual um, structure on the inside was added. They added vertical stabilizers to the tail, which interesting, interestingly enough, uh, were actually removable. They, that was a reversible modification. Um, they upgraded the avionics, including slip sensors and uh, new instrumentation inside the cockpit. Most of the instrumentation was the old, you know, dials, but they also added some digital displays. Um, they upgraded the engines uh, just just slightly to have extra thrust. Um, the ALT or during ALT, so the uh, the landing uh, test where they dropped Enterprise off of the top in mid-flight to let it land. Um, during the ALT program, they also had an escape hatch um, that opened up on the belly of the spacecraft and a tunnel that would let the crew get down to it. Uh, but after the ALT program, they actually removed it. Um, and I saw one source actually cited a, a fear of engine ingestion of the crew. So somebody potentially getting sucked up hmm. into the engine, which is hmm. kind of terrifying. And then, of course, the, the major modification was adding the mounting hardware to the, to the top of the vehicle. So when they uh, attached the orbiter, it was actually mounted aft of the center of gravity because the, the major concern was the aerodynamics, not the not the center of gravity. So when you attach the orbiter, the whole thing becomes tail heavy. Um, so to counter that, they added a bunch of weight in the, in the front of the aircraft, uh, 1700 tons of iron up on the second deck forward of the first class seats, and then 3.5 tons of gravel in shipping containers, uh, were uh, mounted in the forward cargo bay. And so to balance it out with the orbiter installed, when you take the orbiter off, of course, it's unbalanced. Um, and so they needed to add ballast in the tail 
uh, when they took the orbiter off. I believe they just moved the gravel containers uh, from the front to the back, uh, but they, they might have added additional ballast as well. So when shuttle is dry, right, no fluids, no cargo, no nothing, it's actually well under the weight limit of the of the carrier vehicle or the the sea um, but they they kind of overcooked everything so they could fly shuttle with cargo still in it so they could you know land shuttle uh, at edwards and then leave everything inside of it in place and not have to process it until they got back to to kennedy which is pretty neat but in any event, a uh, shuttle was heavy enough that the SCA couldn't fill its fuel tanks. Uh, you know, it had this severely shortened range. And, and part of that was was the aerodynamics, but also, part, you know, the increased drag and the increased or the decreased uh, flight ceiling. But also, um, they couldn't even fill the thing all the way up with fuel. Um, so if you ever see SCA flying with... Uh, with shuttle uh, mated, you can be sure that there is no fuel in the wing tanks. Um, they always left those empty when, when shuttle was on there. So uh, between the two SEAs, they completed 76 ferry flights. Um, nearly two-thirds of those were completed by 9.05, and that's mostly by virtue of the fact that it was hired on earlier. It was, you know, it worked for a longer portion of shuttle's flight. But yeah, pretty cool. So the clue for last week was black side down. And that's a direct reference to a joke that was spray painted or stenciled on to the mounting hardware. And uh, not 905 got it, but then they also added it to 911 when they ended up uh, modifying the second SCA. So it says, uh, attach orbiter here, note black side down, and then... Uh, I believe it. That's what's written on 9:11, and then uh, 9:05 also says "lefty loosey, righty tighty." <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's this week in spaceflight history, and I, I have a clue for next week as well. Um, so next week in 2004, the clue is "no need for tears." So this is a tough clue. Uh, no need for tears. Yep, and I need you to if I will give partial credit if you can guess the event. Uh, but if you want full credit, you got to tell me what this means. Right. Mm -hmm. So next week in 2004, no need for tears. What does that mean? Well, I know, uh, cause, uh, this week I know, you know, what the event is. So I'm kind of excited to see who responds, like who, who actually gets it. Cause, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. All right. But, uh, yeah, if, if you think you know what that is in reference to, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got like four launches, I think, or is it just three? I don't remember, but we also have a spacewalk too. So a bit more activity this week. All right. So first up is a Long March 2D flying three payloads, uh, four payloads, actually. Jilin-1 Wideband-01, Tianchi-4, and then NuSat-7 and NuSat-8. Um, so we know what Jilin is. Tianchi is a uh, commercial communication satellite uh, built by Guodian Gaoke for IoT communications. And it's also got a camera on board for educational purposes, which is kind of cool. So Guodian Gaoke is uh, called the Apocalypse Constellation, or, or the, wow. uh, they're, they're calling this the, the Apocalypse Constellation. Um, so uh, data collection and transmission services for terrestrial network coverage, uh, terrestrial network coverage, uh, blind areas. And then uh, NUSAT is um, built by an Argentinian company called Satellogic, and it's part of the ALAF-1 constellation, um, and it's, uh, it's an Earth observation satellite. 
So this is flying on, or, or they are Earth observation satellites. So this is flying on January 15th at 0253 hours UTC. Um, and of course, it's flying out of uh, Taiyuan. Next up, we've got an Ariane 5 ECA launch, which will be taking uh, Eutelsat Connect and GSAT 30 to space. Uh, Eutelsat Connect is an all-electric KA-band geostationary comm satellite built by Talos Alenia. And the GSAT 30 is a communication satellite for ISRO. The launch will take place on January 16th at 2105 UTC with a window from 2105 to 2300, uh, launching out of Ariane Launch Area 3 in Kourou. And now David gets to do the real fun one. <laughs> now I get to do the fun one, which so far is scheduled for the 18th, and that is the Falcon 9 in-flight abort test, or the Dragon, I should say, in-flight abort test. That was pushed back from the 11th yesterday, um, and I think it was just because they needed more time to analyze something or other. Like, I thought maybe it was due to weather, but it's it's actually not. So the uh, static test fire was done yesterday, and I'm guessing they're going to move that back into the hangar, then roll it back out on the 18th. So yeah, January 18th at 1300 UTC. They have a launch window of uh, approximately 0600 through 1230 Eastern time. Let's just say that. Uh, that's as much as I can figure out. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fuzzy, but I, I would be... I don't believe that they're actually targeting anything earlier than eight. That's just what the the hazard is. Okay. Yeah. To to clear the area. In any event, it's going to happen sometime that day, hopefully. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. And then uh, finally, uh, there's a spacewalk coming up. So this is going to be. Uh, we we mentioned this last week. We're kind of reiterating it now. So this is happening Wednesday, January fifteenth. So the day after the show comes out. Uh, coverage begins at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, and the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 6.50 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and, uh, of course, you can watch that on NASA TV. It's the best place to watch. And all of that uh, represents your upcoming spaceflight events. And then with that, let's deorbit the show. So we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Thank you so much to a user named Gabir, uh, who I believe is Gabir Singh, as well as Reed247 for leaving uh, some, uh, some reviews on iTunes. Or you can visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.